0: Log Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to RSI Help Radio. I'm Deborah Quilter, and some of you may know my books, Repetitive Strain Injury Recovery Book and Respeti- Repetitive Strain Injury: A Computer User's Guide. RSI Help Radio is dedicated to bringing you the latest news and information about repetitive strain injury. Today, I'm going to interview Dr. Robert Markison, an esteemed private practice hand surgeon, and clinical professor of surgery at the University of California, San Francisco. Dr. Markison has nearly 40 years of experience in the surgical and non-surgical management of hand and upper extremity repetitive strain injuries. He is also a lifelong artist, musician, craftsman, and inventor. If you go to see Dr. Markison as a patient, he will sometimes draw an illustration of what he is talking about for you. Now, that's rendering a diagnosis. I met Dr. Markison over 20 years ago at a conference about RSI, and he has remained one of my mentors and go-to experts for years. It's always fascinating to talk to Dr. Markison, and I'm truly pleased that he is my very first guest on RSI Help Radio. Welcome, Dr. Markison.
1: Thanks so much, Deborah. It's just a joy to know you these many years and to see your growing interest and depth of knowledge on the topic of repetitive strain injury. And you're right, I guess 40 years is probably a smaller number than I had in mind since I discovered my own potential for strain as I realized congenital linkage of my right little finger to my right ring finger, which happens in 37% of hands, but doesn't serve a clarinetist very well if you're a fledgling and want to move up in the section and maybe be right at the top of first clarinets. And so... My redesign interests began in my teens and uh, working around anatomical variation by modifying the interface, the clarinet itself, by learning smithing and casting and machining of metals and uh, wood and so on. So I was my own best and worst subject, at least at the start, because I had to invent my way out of trouble into uh, better, more fluent uh, musical instrument handling.
0: Well, there's nothing like first-hand experience to really give you an insight into the patients that you're dealing with. Um, How did you first begin working with people with RSI?
1: Well, it it started probably in the mid-1970s when I proclaimed my own interest in the care of initially musical hands, musical people, and then extended that to all-hand intensive work beyond creatives to people doing work-a-day things, and then it, it grew as I co-founded a health program for performing artists at UCSF in 1984. So now we're we're more than 30 years ago and inviting everyone in. So that could be a person doing all day computing, the early advent of computers, IBM PC, Jr., 82, Macintosh, 1984, all desktops having computers by mid to late 80s, and seeing that we were... I wouldn't call it an epidemic, but we were at risk for abrading uh, normal form and function and fit into potential failure. And so as I looked at everything from the principal violinist of a symphony orchestra to the person who had to enter six or eight hours of data per day on a a flat slab keyboard, I, I got a sense of how we can and should versus shouldn't use ourselves at various interfaces, and so it became an interface issue, and I remain very strongly interested in those doing unique, one-of-a-kind moments in music to the person who's going to write computer code all day and all weekend. Can
0: you talk about, I know we've talked in the past about the brain-thumb linkage and also the interface between the keyboard or some of the other tools that we use, smartphones, smartphones. Games uh notepads, that kind of thing, and I think it would be really helpful if our listeners understood um the role of the thumb and also the 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 way it links to the brain and the amount of space that it takes in the brain, which you talk about so eloquently and then the second part of that question would be um the very posture of using these tools and how they might be affecting our our soft tissues. So um, brain-thumb linkage, what is that?
1: Well, well, I'm I'm very grateful for a long-term close friendship with paleoanthropologist Donald Johansson, who, as we know, found Lucy in Ethiopia and has taken me through not only the human fossil records for the 200,000-year arc of our own biography, but all of our precursors and simian thumbs that could sweep across the hand but not circumduct, meaning go in the big circle. And mm-hmm. so within human evolution, Johansson and Mary Marsky, uh, Institute for Human Origins, determined that about forty-five to 50,000 years ago, the thumb uh, became more truly opposable, and that was largely the evolution of the joint where the thumb joins the wrist called the trapeziometacarpal, a.k.a. Uh, carpometacarpal, a.k.a. basal joint. So this became very free, and there are nine vectors of force playing across that joint. But forty-five to 50,000 years ago, it became free enough for us to become, beyond Homo habilis, the handyman, uh, a real tool builder. And that also meant boat builder, cart builder, everything we needed uh, to fortify brain-thumb linkage in this new kid on the block, the basal joint of the thumb, to get out of sub-Saharan Africa and radiate the species across the globe. And so 50 to 100,000 years ago, we're moving north through the Middle East, turning right into Asia, left into Europe, going across a then-land isthmus into North and then South America and boats and Australia and so on. And so in order to do that, really the break point, I, I would say the opening entry portal to all of this travel and settling the globe in some fashion, was brain-thumb linkage. And so that's very precious And it's a question of how we then design our tools and use those tools through lives that were brutishly short but extending beyond age 55 in the year 1900 to closer to 100 years today in this millennium. So now we've got a, a very interesting story of how we decide to use these parts or perhaps abuse these parts. We have in evolution come out of quadrupedal status, which was palms down uh, on the ground, and the ideal typist, of course, would be a crocodile, which has been on Earth for 35 million years, because they're really set up in a head-forward, limb-forward posture with pronated, meaning palm-down forelimbs, but human evolution came to upright bipedal status with the head well-balanced on the neck, which is, after all, an unstable strut that moves around and quite a quite a swivel compared with these animals with relatively fixed head, neck situations. And then as we stood up, we got a nice swing of the upper limb and we untwisted our palms out of palm down positioning, not quite to a vertical 90, 90 degrees uh, vertical line through the forearm, wrist, and hand, but nonetheless 30, 45, 60 degrees off horizontal. And so our plight was to stand upright not reach our limbs forward and sustain that. And then you enter the computer uh, era, which suddenly, uh, well, did two things. One, the blue-collar worker, who was apparently menial and dismissible because they were enslaved, enslaving their hands, and often in the lower castes of society. Uh, you smudged the blue collar with the white collar. Now, I'm I'm the opposite. I'm an elitist in this regard because I'm a hand-intensive person who grew up in a family of tradespeople. But suddenly, someone who was completely unschooled in typing, touch typing, had to devolve into a palm-down, pronated hands position, head can forward we, looking. Go on. Uh-huh.
0: Can we walk back up just one second? Because sure. I want to make the point that just because you're talking about the freedom of the thumb Mm-hmm. Just because you can make a movement with your thumb doesn't mean it's good. in other words, if you're um doing the spacebar movement and and bringing your thumb down, it's not as um natural or powerful a position as the opposable thumb um making a fist. You know what I mean in the power position?
1: Absolutely. That's a that's a really good point, because as soon as you go flat-handed, let's say you put your mm-hmm. palm down on a table with the thumb, therefore, in the plane of the hand, you've distorted the anatomy of the thumb carpometacarpal or basal joint. And
0: exactly. You,
1: and so as soon as you do that, you do what's called subluxing or subluxate, the thumb metacarpal base, the long bone of the thumb. And if you look at that, it sort of bulges outward. And so you've already disturbed the biomechanics, clinical mechanics of the hand. And that's that's the sort of entry point for straining the thumb index intermodocarpal ligament complex. And so you're going to accelerate trouble as you move in the odd up down vertical plane of spacebar use compared mm-hmm. with a comfortable joint in place uh use in a in a opposition of thumb pad two-digit pads, but there's another biomechanical principle that's incredibly important, which is force amplification or force couple or load amplification from thumb pad to the basal joint of the thumb, which is 10 to 12x. In other words, putting one ounce of pressure at the thumb pad translates to 10 to 12 ounces at this vulnerable joint. And so now imagine and that, that
0: resultant would you you get a worn out joint would you get arthritis would you get soft tissue um injury or both
1: Well it's possible to get all of the above now obviously the the modern research to, uh, focuses appropriately on genetics and uh, primarily females 25% of menopausal postmenopausal women getting symptomatic arthritis almost no matter what they've done through a work life and scope of thumb use. And so you add a genetic predisposition and circulating factors uh, that have been studied in terms of natural predisposition, but then you add add this activity to it, and it's a question and it's still argued uh, nationwide and worldwide as to whether work can cause or contribute to the trouble, my sense is based on seeing thousands of patients over many years, that there are do's and don'ts in terms of proper thumb use. And if you look at the ANSI standards of maybe an ounce and a half of key pressure per character generated on a standard flat slab keyboard, and then you multiply that times 10 to 12 in terms of what's experienced at the vulnerable thumb joint, and then you spread it out in a workday that might be seven and a half hours on a keyboard or the half-hour lunch break then your aggregate sum cumulative force can can be fairly high. And so, and so the up, question is how you're going to tolerate that.
0: Yeah. So moving up to the elbow, I mean we're already talking about the unnatural um, forces and uh, problems with the way the thumb is expected to use uh, a cell phone or a, a keyboard. But what about just the act of bending your elbows and pronating or putting your palms down. What does that do around the elbow joint?
1: Well, it, it's a question whether it can strain the elbow joint equivalent to tennis elbow when you stretch muscles. But let's back up to the curves that govern peripheral muscle and in the heart centrally with its smooth muscle, cardiac muscle is Starling, the Starling curve. but. Peripheral muscle, it's Blix, B-L-I-X, and that, if we look at a kind of a roughly bell-shaped curve that has a little tail on the right end that goes up as you stretch a muscle, but let's think of the bell where the top of the bell would be ideal muscle fiber length at which mm-hmm. you generate best power and have best endurance for repetitive manipulative use. If you stretch a muscle unduly, as you will when you pronate, meaning twist the forearm at the elbow joint cuz you've got the radius rotating around the humerus as you as you do that then you've you've suddenly gone off to the right side of the curve where you're going to fail under load of repetition or or load or repetition and risk that because you're stretching a muscle fiber beyond what's what's the ideal range of length and so mm-hmm. whenever you go palm down you're twisting muscle and maybe not making best possible use of it. And so that's that's part of it. And that also happens for putting your head forward when you're in a head forward position, a sniffing sort of position. That was my next question. Brain. That's it. So, so <laughs> the University of Michigan they're... head forward head forward posturing, so starting up top, is uh, some of University of Michigan biomechanics, they've looked at this, industrial uh, engineering, they've looked at it and found that you, with three inches forward in a facial plane, you can sometimes triple the forces going through neck muscle, and the neck muscles don't live alone because they're clamping down on the spine, increasing the pull of gravity, in effect, and concentrating muscle tension in the, the neck, thorax, cervico, cervical thoracic region. But as you in, engage the limb in a forward reach, a chronic forward reach, in addition to, palms down, pronated forearms, rotated, palms down, positions, you then are violating at multiple levels the Blix curve and uh, are, are at some risk. When you engage the pectoral muscle, for example, over top of important structures called brachial plexus, you can irritate nerves. And it doesn't mean you're going to go down the drain suddenly, but you've got so many musculofibrous uh pathways through which nerves and vessels have to travel, that you don't want to transgress the the free open anatomy that's intended because, after all, the upper limb is living on a neurovascular pedicle, meaning its inflow and outflow arterial and venous and lymphatic supply are combined with inflow nerve supply to move things, motor nerves, outflow sensory pathways to feedback, position, sensibility, vibration, touch, all of that sort of thing, and so you've got this wonderful multi varied fabric tapestry or super highway information and nutrition and waste washout and when you start to twist that and in effect wring out the dish rag you're mm-hmm. you're doing things that maybe you shouldn't do at least single tasking all day may not be a great thing,
0: so how should we be using our hands ideally, and what is? what are some of the ways that people can protect themselves from uh, tools that could be so dangerous?
1: Well, thematically, all all good ergonomics is to bring the object to you rather than bend into it like a supplicant and twist around it. And so if you consider that the upright posture, like Grandma said, sit up straight at the table, would be head upright on the spine, so you're not, not adding anything more to Sir Isaac Newton's immutable laws of gravity And then you decide you're going to keep your limbs a little closer to the body. It doesn't mean you're standing with them strapped to you, but uh, avoiding too much forward reaching that engages pectoral muscle and so on. And the next thing would be avoiding unnecessary pronation. So a fully adjustable split and tilt keyboard would be a good idea. Uh, A vertical mouse would be a good idea. A foot-activated mouse uh, can help Mm -hmm. supplement the need for upper limb use of a cursor device yeah, yeah. and obviously voice recognition software for english as first language or a good second language and other languages are sprouting up and so i i do advocate voice recognition software usage and that might even help us reclaim conversation by way of complete sentences instead of saying it's like i'm like you're like we're all like you know you know so we've we've actually in the digital era lost our ability to communicate verbally so if you cultivate it in the Sketchpad and and functional landscape of voice recognition software, that's very helpful. And then for perhaps a future discussion there are physiologic metabolic endocrine variables within every person, which if if tuned up a little better, will make you better able to sustain repetitive use of self.
0: Really? I would love to talk to you about that. Um, We'll have to do another another uh, segment on that, because I think that would be really fascinating. I mean, you talk a lot about anatomical variation. I think you told me that there were 37 different varieties, known varieties of brachial plexi. And I think um, maybe people feel like we're all built the same way, but can you talk a little bit about how these anatomical variations, I know you talked about the clarinet and your, the linkage of your fourth and fifth finger um, earlier, but are there other things that uh, we should know about in terms of these variations?
1: Oh, absolutely. Nobody promised uh, us one, one type, anatomy 1.0 for all humans, nor were we promised side-to-side Symmetry. After all, we have only one heart, and it's in the left mid-chest as opposed to two hearts. And so we don't necessarily have bilateral symmetry, and and that's not just uh, presence of organs, but it also can be length of limbs and a shorter right or left side, different volumetric displacement of the hands, one larger than the other. Uh, Mm -hmm. The angle at which you can abduct or bring your thumb away from the hand, which is the, the pride of a good pianist who can get an octave or a ninth or a tenth interval and sometimes bigger. The laxity of ligaments and whether they're loose or tight, whether you're short coupled and sausage fingered or you have long lithe fingers at risk by virtue of ligamentous laxity to exploit the moving members, including joint capsules and tendons and so on. And so anatomy is destiny to some extent. I mean, you can't, can't cut apart all these things. Sometimes we have anatomical variations which, if separated, can really save a hand. But more often than not, it's better to work around your own anatomical variation, not exploiting hypermobile joints and that sort of thing. But 37 primary form frust anatomical variations of the brachial plexus, but the first 10 years of my surgical career were broad use of my surgical skills, including machete wounds to the neck and thorax, which included the plexus, and so you're 3 a.m. looking at atypical spaghetti that you're putting together under a microscope in addition to repairing arteries and veins and so on, and, and you realize, my goodness, you know, this this doesn't look anything like the book. And so between those 37 form-froost anatomical variations, you've got near infinity, so chance will favor the prepared surgical mind in terms of reconstruction but then you work backwards to pre-injury status and consider that why why can't we just understand that there is significant anatomical variation among the human species. It's more often the rule than not that the newest parts, including thumb joints uh, within the evolutionary arc, are sometimes the most vulnerable, and then designed for prevention. And so thematically, yeah. for me, it's more than a half century of starting with personal and then generalizable Designed for prevention, and so we never want to push ourselves to the brink because human the the human biography is one of geographical freedom, but then within the personal biography, it's one of avoiding captivity at the end by virtue of loss of function. If you lose your your mental faculties, you're going to be captive. You lose your 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 spine, lower limbs, upper limb function, other ends. Senses, you know, you you could very well become captive, and that would be a an, an unfortunate thing. Obviously, we do have people who, by virtue of chronic illness, may not be able to self-sustain. But I think I think within the big and small pictures of the relatively short history of mankind, it, it'd be nice to maintain as much freedom and teach subsequent generations to do so as possible. I mean, that's our gift of of being human, the, the freedom yeah. to create and sustain.
0: One of the things that I've noticed, Dr. Marcuson, in the people who come to uh, consult with me, is that they're getting younger and younger. I am seeing people who started using computers and became injured as teenagers. And I'm wondering if you're seeing uh, similar patterns as I did. I remember when I wrote my first book years ago, thinking... This was going to be a problem, and it's, it appears just from empirical observation that this is happening. You know, the kids are getting—they're so involved in their games in their laptops, and their um, laptops—and that they they just get very, very bad injuries, worse than the the injuries that I had seen among adults uh, when I first started. I'm just wondering if you have any observations along these lines.
1: Well, sure, it's a bi bidirectional uh, uh, expansion of strain, vulnerability to strain in a demographic that needs medical care because you've got kids in the always-on position. When I was little, we drew a, a little circle. We'd each have marbles, the big shooter, and then small marbles, and we'd hit for the middle and try and knock a few out of the middle. And that wasn't an always-on state. We we kind of took turns, so we weren't always switched on in terms of activity as the kids are with their video gaming and cell or tablet-based gaming. They're just in an always-on situation without cycles of action and repose. But you know, the scribes of Egypt, some of the early strained people, started a, an apprenticeship to become a scribe at age five, usually boys, girls who were going to become doctors, um, were sometimes included, but generational handing down of scribes. Uh, you'd train for four or five years to be a scribe in Egypt age five to ten, and prone to strain. I mean, you're in a higher caste of society uh, above slaves, farmers, and craftsmen unto the level of soldiers, well below Pharaoh, but nonetheless busy, 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 tallying the grain that you harvested, uh, putting up taxes, and so on. So scribes of Egypt were some of the first actual strain uh, victims. They were young. And so uh, we're back to young scribes who can write code, and they're prodigies and writing computer language by age 10 or 15. So the new scribe obviously is not only creating the code in which we must function within apps applications, but in medicine itself we've got the new scribes who enter into the mandated electronic health records so that Mm -hmm. the new scribes can be a paraprofessional or a doctor and the the physician uh, is now coming to the office with strain injury because they must fulfill a governmental mandate of electronic health records, and they're not schooled typists, oh, nor, no. do they, nor do they have time or interest in it. So um, then we've got an older working demographic for failure of the economy, and so the older people who dreamt of retirement never will. So that means the naturally aging hand is forced across the keyboard at age 60, 65, 70, 75. And I have some septa and octogenarians coming in who realize that Their savings have failed, so they're destined to uh, work to the end. And understanding that, they want to protect brain-hand linkage and figure out how to work and how to be healthy apropos the metabolic and endocrine and other aspects of being healthy and withstanding repetitive use.
0: You know, one thing that just occurred to me um, I'd love for you to talk about. You talk about the brain-thumb linkage, and, of course, the thumb is what created... Homo sapiens, correct. The, the use of the thumb developed our brains, and you talk about how the heart takes up the size of Rhode Island in the homunculus, and the brain, the thumb, the hand takes up the size of Texas, um, or at least you uh, talk even about even
1: more. Add on Alaska, and California. Alaska. I okay. mean, if you look at see the homunculus popularized by anatomists, especially Frank Netter. Uh, the great medical illustrator of the 20th century who would kind of turn the brain inside out and show the relative representation on the sensory motor cortex of
0: yes. the various
1: peripheral but, parts. But the thumb reigns supreme in that picture.
0: Are we destroying our brains by using <laughs> our hands poorly? This is the question. I mean, I just think, you know, things go both ways. The nerves have, you know, sensory inflow and outflow and motor. And how about... I, I just wonder, you know, what this uh, misappropriation of the hand has done perhaps to our brains. I mean, a, a, on another episode, I want to talk about the um, the endorphin response from, you know, responding to the various things that we hear, you know, when you get a new email and that sort of thing. But do you think that there's any anything to that?
1: Well, the question is whether we're more capable or less capable as as humans than we were when we needed a wide-open set of senses and reflexes. I mean, you had to in the hunter-gatherer days figure Mm -hmm. out whether it was a safe or poison berry or nut, and you had to figure out how to build a house and build a fire and keep it warm and store your food and so on. So the progressive incapacity of the human species uh, is based on not needing to know much except how to submit your... Order online for something that might be a piece of clothing or even tonight's dinner, and that that means that we no longer uh, vary the use of self and a full yeah. open scope of brain hand brain thumb linkage in order to create and sustain what we need, since everything's a click away, and so that that homogenization of the human being and uh, is something that beyond amuses, interests me because I, I really uh, have, have a broad demographic that I care for, including those who can go out into the brush and wilderness, harvest local materials for food and shelter, mm-hmm. and clothe themselves and take mm-hmm. care without needing anything except an open set of senses and a, a terrific skill set. So we're becoming well, uh- single taskers, and I think single tasking is always risky for the human brain.
0: On that wonderful note, um we're just about out of time and I want to thank you so much for coming on to the show Dr. Marcuson. Uh you have a website, correct?
1: Yeah, Marcus- it's just w- www.marcusonmd.com, And uh, you know some some of what I've said is descriptively there, but uh the big books I'm I'm still working on.
0: Cool. We can't wait for your big books. And if anybody has any questions that they'd like us to follow up on, please email me at rsihelpradio and look forward to next time. Bye.
1: Bye Bye-bye.
0: Bye.